On Thursday, July 14th, Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City hosted the Rise of Charm City Live, our very first performance show at the historic Frederick Douglass Isaac Myers Maritime Park and Museum in downtown Baltimore. We invited listeners from near and far, as well as the Baltimore residents and business owners we've interviewed over the course of our first 10 episodes to join us. Now, we're inviting you. Good evening. Um, I mean, I, I've been in public radio for 24 years, a long time, and I've heard a lot of radio in my time, and I produce a lot of radio in my time, and I will say that I've never heard something quite so extraordinary as what these women have produced at WEAA. And I even snuck around and listened to other stations and other air projects around the country, and there's some good stuff out there, really good stuff. But these young women, and I can say young because I'm old, <laughs> these young women have just blown it out of the water. Or as they say in today's world, they dropped a mic. They have done extraordinary work. And we said, come use half part of our program to air your program. And I wasn't sure what I was going to hear. But I know that they were really working hard at this. And then I heard the first episode and listened to every episode they've ever done and kept writing them notes about the episodes every time they finished with my thoughts on the episodes and how great they were and what they did. They have a sense of sound, of story that you don't get everywhere. And it's, and, and the thing that's very cool about this, it's an all-woman operation, except for Mark Gunnery, who does the music. He's my producer and does the music and stuff for the program as well. But this is a woman's operation, right? Back Marsha Jews is the station coordinator for all this, doing the whoop-whoop in the back. Mavish Rasa um, is an incredible editor who edited this program, did most of the editing. Allie Post, if she's, right? She is almost in some ways like the backbone of this whole thing. She produces, she runs out in the field and tapes. She helps organize the whole thing. She busts her butt, she's in there every morning early, because we get in there early because our show is at 10. She's always there. This little sister works hard. And then the heart and mind and soul of the piece, Stacia Brown. She, the words you hear are the words she writes. No one else writes her scripts. She writes her scripts. She does that work. She has a sense of these stories. And just a little anecdote before I bring Stacia up here. You know, I, I listened to all the episodes. I listened to the episode with Joe Haskin and, 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 the, and the, the Savings Alone and Black Banks of Baltimore, which is a really important piece. Baltimore has a whole story here that some of the other nation does not have. Um, the story she told about Shake and Bake, they, they, these women told about Shake and Bake. The story they told about Hamden, which was a very incredible piece. Because we live in a world right now where race and racism are paramount discussions in our society as they should be, and wrestling with it. I've never heard a piece that did it with such honesty, without judgment, hearing people's voices, with such honesty as the piece they did about Hamden. 
was just beautiful. It was a lesson to all of us about how we hear. One of the first lessons I learned on radio 24 years ago when I learned it from an, 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 an Native American guy when I was at this conference, and we talked about what is, what is communication. People, mostly black and white in the room, had all these different answers, and almost every Indian person had the same answer, listening. That changed my whole way of thinking. These women listen. They listen to the people they're talking to. That's one of the reasons their stories are so powerful, besides the power of how they edit and put these stories together. So without further ado, Stacia Brown. There are few cities less understood by outsiders than Baltimore. Sometimes it isn't even well understood by those right here in town. Take me, for instance. I grew up bouncing from burb to burb in Baltimore County, Pikesville to Randallstown to Owings Mills and back. For most of my childhood, the city was one large, amorphous mystery, a series of streets suffused with beauty, a budding tragedy. I knew that light danced on the water at the Inner Harbor and that its breathtaking, shimmery surface hid something quite toxic underneath. I knew that the impressive, gravity-defying lean someone might assume while standing at a bus stop was not the stuff of Tai Chi or yoga training, but rather the evidence of addiction. I knew that some of the oldest and best private schools in Baltimore were within the city's boundaries, and some of its most challenged academic institutions were struggling within those city limits, too. I knew that Baltimore was insular and idiosyncratic from block to block, and if you weren't born here, only raised like me, a lifelong Baltimorean could call you out right away. <laughs> I knew that when someone died in the city, unexpectedly or unjustly, the language of mourning could be raucous. The language of loss could be dance, could mimic jubilation, could be mistaken as out of hand. I knew that fear belied that loudness, harsh sentencing stoked it, helplessness amplified it, resilience emboldened it. I learned all those things by observing them from afar, but I never really understood the city, never even scratched a surface of understanding, really, until the Association of Independence and Radio paired me with WEAA to create Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, the audio documentary series we're here to celebrate tonight. This project has taken me to areas of town I'd only seen in passing before. I'd been to Shake and Bake Family Fun Center and the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum, but I hadn't given much thought to the challenges and the beauty of the neighborhoods immediately surrounding them. I'd heard about Hamden from tourists, but I'd never spent much time there myself. I had a lot to learn, from the Harbor Bank of Maryland to Morgan State University to Masjid al-Safat. I've learned that Baltimore, as one of America's oldest cities, houses remarkable histories that should be better known and more widely celebrated. I've learned that what's happened here, what continues to happen here, has and always will inform the nation. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City Live. In late December, our team made its first reporting trip to Shake and Bake. We asked some of the seniors who skate there on adult night what they remembered about the city's early, the center's earliest days. Who was the original owner? Was that the gentleman? Yeah. 
I started skating when it first opened here in 1982, wasn't it? And Glenn Downey was in charge. And we had a wonderful time, wonderful time skating. Glenn Downey came here um, last year. He came here a couple times last year. Mr. Anthony, the manager, he took pictures with him. Everyone who spoke of Mr. Dowdy seemed to revere him. We knew we couldn't tell the best story possible about the history of Shake and Bake without him, so we called him. He spoke to us from his longtime city of residence, St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, this is Glenn Dowdy, formerly of the Baltimore Colts. Shaking and Bacon is the name of my groove. Tried to help Baltimore move. Glenn Dowdy was among the first interviewees we'd, met, we'd meet over the course of the, la the last eight months to be both generous with his time. He talked to us for almost an hour and excited to be part of our grand experiment, an audio documentary that will preserve some of the city's underexplored history through a fusion of creative narrative, fun music reflecting the time periods being discussed, and interview clips. Mr. Dowdy had no idea what our podcast would be or how it would sound, but he trusted us with his story believed we'd do something significant with it. Here are some things he told us about his memories of Baltimore City at the onset of the 1980s. When I got drafted by the Colts from the University of Michigan and came to Baltimore, I was excited because of Baltimore's reputation as one of the top franchises in the NFL, which was really, really exciting for me. And being able to come to a football town was, was exciting also. Baltimore was, uh, particularly down at the Inner Harbor, Miss Brown, was very vacant and dangerous. <laughs> and the city was really going through some very, very tough times. But it, when, you're, when you move into a town, you always are looking around and seeing how the town is. And the town was going through some very tough times in terms of urban renewal, particularly downtown. But the fans of Baltimore were all welcoming to me and my family, and she, we couldn't wait to get started. Well, you know, the city needs to make a major commitment to the neighborhood. They're not doing anything for the neighborhood. All of this is going down at the Inner Harbor. Down at the Inner Harbor, they were giving waivers on loans and interest payments for 10 years. They didn't have to pay anything when they were building down in the Inner Harbor. For 10 years, they didn't have to pay on principal or interest because they were interested in getting them to come down to the Inner Harbor. And that was one thing that we didn't get when we first created Shake and Bake. And that's one of those things that you look back on and you said, if you had known, you would have pursued it. But we needed to just focus in on getting that baby out of the ground. And we did. It's this last bit where Mr. Dowdy recalls structural inequity and a disproportionate investment between Baltimore's white communities and its black ones that has become one of our season's most vital overarching themes. Listen to what developer Evan Morville told us about the substantial investments being made to revitalize the predominantly white former mill town of Hamden and some of the city's other predominantly white communities. What's occurred in the last 10 years in Baltimore is amazing. Uh, it's amazing. What's happened at Harbor East and what's happened in Canton are great, but what's going to be fun and exciting is to see the areas other than the Inner Harbor getting developed. The areas like Remington, like Hampton, like Woodbury, like 
other parts that aren't along the water turning around and people wanting to move into it. And it's fun to see a new generation of people come into the city to make it the place that it can and once was. Listen to what business owner Kevin Brown told us about investments and developments being made in Station North, one of the city's designated arts districts. I clearly see that there are what I call pockets of poverty and islands of excellence here in the neighborhood. That shouldn't be. There should be some seamless success between, again, the legacy residents and the newcomers who want to come into the neighborhood. I want to see them being powered financially. I don't see that happening a lot. I see a lot of my white counterparts getting opportunities that my black counterparts don't even get notice of or they get late notice for them. I see um, programs um, by my white counterparts easily funded with a letter of intent where my black counterparts must have 15 pages and, you know, three years of taxes. If Biffy and Caitlin can get Corian counters and Silestone counters and stainless steel appliances and rooftop decks, when they move into the neighborhood, that's all great and wonderful. But if Mookie and Keisha want to get some things too, they should be able to get that too. And a lot of times those programs are geared toward newcomers and not what I call legacy residents. I was at um, an opening recently where one woman was incentivized $100,000 to move into this neighborhood in incentives. I think she even got money back at at the table where the person three doors down from her can't even get a loan for a furnace or lead paint removal or asbestos or whatever. And then consider the story of Dr. Joanne Martin, who co-founded the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum with her husband, Dr. Elmer P. Martin, in 1983. The question is still asked by far too many public officials in this city that is predominantly African-American with so many African-American leaders, is why should we support a museum located where Great Blacks and Wax is located? And I think that the unrest answered that question, but I still don't know that a connection has been made between all of that and, and the fact that we are here and should be supported and what we do is important. I don't know that that message has been communicated, embraced. Elmer and I thought that we would be these wonderful Martins and we turned out to be the Crazy Martins. That was the name that we, that we got, the handle that we were given. His idea was what people call today an arts and entertainment district. Elmer called it a cultural hub. And the anchor institution would be the Great Blacks and Wax and our 120,000 square foot museum. But on the 1500 block would be the Uhuru Village Place. It would have studio space for artists and booth space and vendor space and exhibition space. So those people who have come from New York and who are saying after Great Blacks and Wax, what is there to see? Then we would be saying, go across the street to the 1500 block and support those artists. And we would say to the artists, we've got space that you can afford where you can live, a live and work space. And on the 1700 block, the Gompers building, Elmer's vision was for an entertainment complex so that you would have theater and music and performances and teaching kids to dance and tell stories or what they call maker spaces now, so manufacturing and all kinds of things that could lead to this entertainment complex and support. Over the years, Shake and Bake has also dreamed of reinvigorating its founding history as a hub of black-owned small businesses. There's plenty of room for such a renaissance. The facility is well over 80,000 square feet large. But such an endeavor takes substantial revenue as well as investors who believe in its potential. Despite being a safe haven and gathering space for generations of children and families, 
current Shake and Bake manager, Anthony Williams, has had a share of challenges maintaining what the facility already houses. It's skating rink, bowling alley, and community spaces for gatherings like church services and Zumba classes. That hasn't always been profitable, but it's truly been a labor of love. The community understands Shake and Bake's value. Here's Mr. Dowdy on how the facility was protected during last year's uprising. When this whole issue was going on, uh, they would, he, the kids and adults and teenagers and folks were saying, don't even think about it in terms of going into Shake and Bake doing nothing relating to any kind of uh, disturbance there, which was like, it was pretty much like it was an oasis within the framework of the, of the chaos that was going on. It's true. Shake and Bake worked its usual magic. It's managed to remain open even after taking a long-term financial hit in the aftermath of the uprising and its damage to surrounding businesses. From what we saw on the nights we visited, regulars, the 30 and up crowd, and family night enthusiasts remain undeterred. Still, from a business standpoint, Shake and Bake hasn't been left entirely unscathed. I have to be honest with you. Um, some people have a phobia about Pennsylvania Avenue after a certain time. Was I, this before Freddie Gray? This was before Freddie Gray, and even more so now. A lot of our feedback has been not coming in the area because of, you know, what they witnessed from April. So, you know, um, I'm not getting into a whole bunch of the finances, but it has impacted us greatly. So did you get any of that impact money from the city? We didn't get any, and we found out after the deadline, because I didn't know that there was an economic portion of finances being allotted. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just the rebuilding of businesses that were affected through the rioting and things of that nature. But, um, I mean, you just have to pick up and, you know, and keep it moving. All over the city, money is funneled into some communities at the expense of others. All over the city, black home and business owners have worked tirelessly to keep their community and personal spaces open within their possession and under their own management or ownership. Baltimore, the rise of Charm City, has found that to be both remarkable and inspiring. Of course, Baltimore, one of the country's top 15 cities with the highest national percentages of black residents, is no stranger to this kind of resilience. We are, after all, one of the very few cities across the country that are still able to boast an open, operational, and thriving black-owned commercial bank, one of less than 20 left in the nation. In May, we interviewed Joseph Haskins, president of the Harbor Bank of Maryland in his Fayette Street, in his Fayette Street office, and heard about just how much ingenuity it's taken to keep the bank alive for the past 34 years. The point right before um, the announcement of that major uh, catastrophic moment, which was in September of uh, 2008, when the financial systems around the world almost came to a halt, um, we were requiring real estate investors to have 25 and 30% equity involved, and we said, okay, fine, if things go bad, we'll sell at um, 80 cents on the dollar and we'll get our money back. I'll have to be honest to say I thought I had us covered. However, uh, we weren't selling at 75 and 80 cents on the dollar. We were getting out at 40 and 45 cents on the dollar. Harbor had been a conservative lender uh, all along. We didn't have 
the same level of risk exposure in our portfolio as some of our colleague bankers did. The most significant uh, point of pride is our length of existence. We're now 34 years old. When we were organizing, I was told that it would never happen. I was told when we opened the doors, it wouldn't last two years. And told if it lasted two years, by five years, we would be a faint thought in the minds of most. And finally, at the 15-year point, people stopped uh, predicting our demise. I'm a product of the 60s, and so the questions are, and the questions that surface was, was or is it uh, possible that an African-American can run a financial institution, which is a complex in institution, and be successful at it? And so I think I've dispelled all of that. Banks really are institutions that essentially manage risk. No matter how smart you are, you can only buck the trend but so long. You've got to be able to manage through the risk, and if you're not, you're going to be penalized for it, and the penalty can sometimes be extinction. For a city that is predominantly black and that has long pushed back valiantly against disparity in areas like housing, finance, health, employment, and education, the significance of historically black-owned institutions here is profound. Baltimore, the rise of Charm City, has been proud to contribute to the gathering of oral histories from some of those institutions and communities. We've shared the voices of the regular customers who keep shake and bake roller rink doors open. Sure grip. Chassis, ride out boot, bone, bone elite wheels. The boot itself, only boot for about 25 years. My boot has a level sole. Boots that they make now, if, if you don't spend a certain amount of money, have rubber soles, so they give, you know. The chassis comes off of the boot and all. But I have level. You want to see it? Um, my brother, when he was alive, he bought some, some skates called Douglas Snyder's one step up from these, and they cost him $600. We have people that skate now who skate for $1,000. I have a Deus. They are very expensive. They are about $1,100. They will not break on you <laughs> at all. Sure grip with uh, Rydell hockey boots. You know, they, they are more durable you know, because of the nature of hockey. And I come to realize they, they are built to last. And I got these skates, well, they're about 15 years old now. Got them in 2000, 2001. I got my own skates. It's better to have your own skates because your own skates, they are trained. Only you can skate with them good. I rent sometimes, but I, sometimes I had my own. Like I had these pink skates. When I used to rent, I used to get these old skates and they was brown and white. And they were so cute, but they was just old though. And yeah, they used to make me fall sometimes because they ain't, my skates had the little stopper thing on it. And theirs, they, they didn't. They got big little wheels on it. It was some big wheels. Like that's how I met my best friend at Shake and Bake. And we became close friends because we used to go to classes together. I went to two sessions, and she made me keep going because that's how we always see each other. We shared the stories of young people whose lives were forever changed at the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum. After you leave the lobby where you see Hannibal, 
and lots of and like Bessie Coleman, the first uh, black female pilot. You go into this area where you see, you know, different exhibits, but then you see like a mimic, like a ship on the left side, and you go in there, and you get to see what, get a little brief idea of what it was like for the Middle Passage, um, where people were force fed, uh, people were thrown overboard. People were branded, um, and how if one was sick, even those who may be healthy that were chained to them, they were all just tossed off the boat. Just lots of crazy stuff. And that when Baltimore, Baltimore was actually, I think they mentioned, was a port where they, where they said they wouldn't allow slaves. They wouldn't allow slaves coming because you can smell the, the stench over five miles away. And can you imagine? Like, that just, that's just really crazy to, you know, really imagine like something that bad and then even sharks will follow behind the ship and then the one thing that really stands out to me what they said that there's sharks that still follow that triangle that path to this day because of the amount of ships that traveled uh between here the caribbean and africa it's just really mind-blowing i learn something every time i visit there being involved there at 10 years old um it made me more self-aware made more conscious of who I, who I was, where I came from. It made me not only understand that, but understand the potential that I had within me. Um, I dared to become an engineer. Um, so now I'm working for the Department of Defense as an engineer. Um, I think that um, it's, it's kind of hard to say what, the, what I would have been without the museum, but I think the museum definitely played a role in that, seeing uh, Granville T. Woods or Lewis Latimer, who were, who were electrical engineers and pioneers in that field, and saying that, okay, you know, I really can become an engineer. This is work we've been honored and humbled to present in classrooms and on the airwaves to lifelong Baltimoreans and those just moving to town, as well as out-of-towners across the country and abroad. It's work we, continue, we, we intend to continue with the continued interest and investment of listeners like you. We've barely skimmed the storytelling surface in the city of Baltimore. In season two, we want to tell the story of Provident Hospital and cover the century-old city poly sports rivalry. We want to explore the history of public housing here, including the demolition of projects like Lexington Terrace and Murphy Homes, from the perspectives of those who were among its very first and very last residents. We'd love to tell stories about the city's historically black funeral homes and cemeteries and to visit several areas of the city we have yet to reach, like Cherry Hill, Park Heights, Sharp Leadenhall, and Edmondson Village. Just as we've done in season one, we'll continue to ask members of the community like you to offer suggestions about businesses, schools, neighborhoods, and landmarks you'd like us to explore. Because this project is not just about community pride, but also about community service. And we are remiss if we aren't serving those who are most in need of caring, even-handed storytelling about their often misunderstood communities. This has been The Rise of Charm City Live. At this time, please join me in welcoming to the stage the voices you just heard via recorded interviews. Dr. Joanne Martin of the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum. Mr. Joseph Haskins, President and Chairman of CEO of the Harbor Bank of Maryland. And Mr. Anthony Williams, Manager of Shake and Bake Family Fund Center. So we've just got a really brief panel discussion tonight, and I'm going to ask three questions, and then we'll open the floor for a brief Q&A. Right. Question number one. 
Earlier this month, the New York Times published an article titled, titled Pillars of Black Media Once Vibrant, Now Fighting for Survival. In it, Desiree Rogers, chief executive of Johnson Publishing said, quote, it's tougher and tougher for African-American companies to have the capital to compete in a landscape that's increasingly crowded and increasingly changing. And Armstrong Williams of Howard Stirk Holdings, which owns seven black-owned television stations, provided an even more bleak quote. His quote was, black ownership is dying. As longtime owners and operators of institutions here in Baltimore, what are your views on those perspectives? Mr. Haskins. Thank you very much for allowing me to comment, and uh, thanks for the wonderful um, job that you guys have done. Uh, it is a joy for me to share with you uh, a bit of the history of Harbor Bank, but to answer that question, I can tell you that uh, in this country over uh, the years and almost since the beginning, it has been a major challenge for black businesses in particular to access capital that situation continues today, and so those comments are not unfounded. Uh, I can tell you that the reason for the founding of the Harbor Bank that I happen to have been a part of was to help address that situation. Uh, it is uh, unfortunate that uh, that is the case because Without the capital, you can't do the growth and expansion that are natural to your business. Uh, you can't acquire the kinds of machinery or the equipment and today upgrade to the technology that's necessary uh, for your business to be either effective and or competitive. Uh, it's one of the challenges of the 20th century uh, that we tried to address, and now here I am in the 21st century still trying to address. Dr. Martin, how do you feel about that quote, black ownership is dying? Well, um, as, the, uh, as a historian, when I look at um, the ways in which um, so many of our communities as a result of um, um, segregation uh, and, and then desegregation, uh, what we lost in terms of desegregation, um, the notion that um, a sense of those communities that had been the, um, the pillar, the, the foundation of who we are, um, the church, the school, the community being one and the same, um, businesses that thrived because they had a clientele, um, the rejection of the, of the wider society that made our communities necessary, and then uh, so easily to turn um, your back on those very communities that have that had nurtured you, and to decide that the the water in the white restaurant was colder uh, than the, than your cold water. Um, so having to fight um, for that, uh, it, it comes uh, for great blacks and wax in terms of um, we wouldn't survive, um, we wouldn't be here today if we didn't work very very hard to bring an audience from outside this um, city. Um, we wouldn't be here if um, we didn't try to partner with other, um, other businesses. And we wouldn't be here if we didn't have the passion and the belief that our children should not have to believe that they have to leave our communities to find something worthwhile. So it is that commitment, that understanding that what we're doing is right, 
and that we should not be deterred from that, even as the crazy Martins. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Martin. And Mr. Williams. Thank you for having me. Uh, one thing that um, I think about often um, when I hear statements like that is the fact that um, you know it's, it, it can't be you know a lot of validity in it because you have three persons sitting in front of you that have what I consider staying power, and that's why um, I believe personally that most uh, black businesses um, does not survive. Um, we, we, we don't thrive as much as, you know, other businesses. And then secondly, um, if we would support, when I say we, I'm talking about African Americans, if we would support African American businesses, um, I think that we would have some of the success that other businesses have. And if we um, just, you know, just want to invest in our communities. Um, I grew up in East Baltimore. But I've served, um, you know, I'm a public servant as I call myself, you know, but I've served in um, West Baltimore for 31 years. That was my first job from high school. And you know, I started at that facility uh, taking tickets at the roller skating rink door. And, uh, but intuitively, I knew that one day, you know, I would be the person, you know, that would be leading, you know, this institution. And this is West Baltimore City Landmark. And um, currently, you know, I invest in young people. We have 70 youth workers to date, um, you know, because at one time when they had Baltimore Summer Corp, um, I probably was one of those individuals that was on the waiting list. So, you know, I just, you know, say, okay, let them come. I don't have so much for them to do, but, you know, we have, you know, children there. Uh, they come for camps. Uh, so what I do is, you know, I just try to teach them life and business skills um, because, you know, at one time, you know, somebody invested in me, um, a gentleman by the name of Anthony Deese. He saw something in me. He hired me, and 31 years later, you know, my group, <clears throat> I'm sorry, my company, which is called Kingdom Managed, Inc., um, you know, we're leading, you know, that facility, and, um, you know, it's been, it's been some challenges, um, but, you know, we, we still moving, um, you know, you have to stay positive and stay passionate, you know, about what we're doing and, um, and that's what keeps us thriving. But young people actually runs that facility. Um, high school, you know, students, you know, we have about 15 students during the year, you know, from this group of young people, we'll select another 10 to 15 and, you know, add them in. But I just wanna make sure that, you know, if we can just keep them off the streets doing something that they like to do, and that's helped serve people, then you know, I think we'll continue you know, to be successful. Thank you. And the second question is, how have things changed for small business owners and small businesses, black-owned businesses here in Baltimore in the past decade or so? I'd like to say that um, there has been growth. But before commenting on that, uh, when I look back, or if you look back at the census data, um, the census data of 2007 uh, reflected that in the city of Baltimore there were roughly about 39,000 uh, businesses. Uh, now, if you look at, and the data that's scheduled to come out, it's being released almost now, is 2012, 
there's a suggestion that there's about a 30% plus growth. Now, on the surface, that sounds wonderful because you said great, and when you look at Baltimore compared to other major cities around the country, uh, that percentage increase looks wonderful. However, um, I want you to understand that some of those businesses that were around in 2007 did not survive the Great Recession. And I'm not talking about now statistics put together by others, but by direct experiences with those who were borrowers at the bank, which was a very difficult time for me to live through because many of the uh, individuals that I had to work with uh, were sort of characterized as not worthy or less than, et cetera. But these were individuals who had become victims of a great recession. Um, and the sad part about it, they had little uh, contribution in bringing it about, but yet they were victimized by it. One of the largest businesses, by the way, in the city, without calling a name, that had gotten to about 40 million in sales and employed close to 200 people no longer exists today. Uh, so when we look at that uh, period, it was very devastating for the African-American uh, business community uh, in particular. And one of the sad, uh, I guess, points in the, uh, in the city. Um, I also want to tell you that those that happened to survive and continued through that period, and it was great to hear about how Shake and Bake dealt with the Freddie Gray disturbance because a number of businesses did not survive or did not fare well, and they didn't because there was a loss of revenue. Many who were in the food service business located in areas considered as more questionable lost patronage. And you don't make up that patronage. Now, the interesting part that you don't think about and you won't know about is the impact that it had on the faith-based community. Often, the faith-based community during difficult times becomes a retreat. It becomes a place where people go to find inspiration and encouragement and to uh, find a comfort that keeps them going. Well, during this period of the recession, which extended over to the Freddie Gray, there was a substantial decline in the number of folks who attended these faith-based organizations. As a result, the revenue of those institutions began to drop, and a crisis developed nationally, by the way, in the faith-based community across the country and principally impacting the black church in the urban community. And many of us uh, formed different coalitions to have them um, seek and, and, and receive advice on how to, to weather those storms. So, um, so there, there were challenges from those two events, however, we see many of them that are working through. I hear now, and it's interesting again to hear the, uh, your comments on Shake and Bake because what we learned is that many of the small businesses did not know about the different funds that were put together 
to provide some sort of benefit for those that were substantially impacted. Because of our deep penetration in the community, we were approached by the SBA and given a special grant to reach out on a consulting basis to those businesses, which we continue to do today. And we set up several forms where we invited those businesses in that we knew that were unaware and didn't know about the different fund sources that they could pursue to give them some sort of financial relief during the crisis period. That has helped several to survive and we are in further conversation, I might say quickly, with the SBA and I was two weeks ago in the White House with a program that will be announced not too long from now to say how we can further look at bringing financial resources to the African-American business space. That's awesome. I'm gonna ask the third question and you can choose to respond to the second question or the third question, because we're running a little short on time. So the third question is that, to Mr. Haskins' point, it seems that new business ventures are emerging in the city every day, but keeping those businesses afloat is a tougher endeavor. What advice would you give to new and aspiring entrepreneurs and owners? As I mentioned uh, in, in, the, in the clip, uh, my husband, Elmer, um, he, he had a plan. Um, he, um, for him, uh, the idea of a cultural hub. And as I um, tried to push and advance um, that plan, uh, for me what it means is that um, there is strength in unity. Um, we um, are calling to, um, together the stakeholders to look at a cultural hub in East, East Baltimore what is known um, as uh, arts and entertainment districts. Uh, because the question for me is where is our station north? And, and that is not, um, you know, I'm, um, I'm not attempting to criticize station north, but I am saying that um, the leaders of this city need to have a, a, a different paradigm. That the paradigm that exists today does not work. And we've got a great Blacks and Wax. On Friday of um, last week, we had um, 150 students from the Superior uh, Court who and they came in the evening. Mm -hmm. On Monday, we had six buses from Morgan State University of the students who are in the um, freshman orientation class. Um, and they've been coming for the last seven years. Um, Tuesday, we had group, um, all together about a group of uh, groups of about uh, 200 people for, for that day. Today we had close to 500 students in the, in the museum. 300 from the uh, Urban League Youth Summit uh, and then various other groups. That's tourism and we're doing it on a corner of East North Avenue uh, and, and, and Broadway and, and Bond Street. Um, we work with um, um, Renaissance Productions and we're hiring tour guides. It pays $25 a, 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 an hour, by the way. Um, our children in our tour guide training program from YouthWorks, we would not have made it today without those children. Um, we work with Terra Cafe and Birdland. When we have those groups coming in and they say we want to have a, a, a lunch experience or whatever, then to partner with um, some of those businesses that are struggling, you know, just like all the rest of us. But there has to be strength and unity and a belief in one another and, and, and a belief that we need to begin to make more demands of the, of the city and, and the leaders to change the paradigm because they chase um, 
fires, put out fires, and, and that's not going to work in this city. It hasn't worked. Mr. Williams, you can respond to the second question, which was how have things changed for small businesses in Baltimore in the past decade, or the third question, which was about advice to new and aspiring owners. Uh, uh, the third, and uh, one thing that I always uh, refer to is the uh, scripture, and there's a passage that says, train up a child in the way that he should go, so when he grow old, he won't depart from it. And that's why I actually just invest a lot of my time, energy, and effort in youth. Um, but even for just so last week, a young lady came in from New Jersey. She wanted to open up a barbershop. The location that she selected, she had the building, and she selected this location where over the past three weeks, they've had three murders, um, a shooting. One of the young people that I mentor, he's in... Um, shot trauma now and we don't know which way he's going to go, 16 years old. And um, so I asked, I said, well, why did you select that location? So she said, um, my husband selected it. So I stayed away from that. So what, 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 I did, what, what I did suggest to them though was to go down the street in the 1500 block and there's a gentleman by the name of Raymond. Um, Raymond has been in the community, he's been a barber for 30 plus years and I said to her, I said, you want to talk to him? Uh, so she you know, was a little fearful about that. I said, listen, you're not trying to you know, get his uh, barbers or anything. Just ask him questions. Tell him what you're doing. Ask him questions. I know him personally. And you know, he'll share some light on what you need to do. Ask him what's the going rate you know, for booth rent in the area. I can't answer that. I can tell you about roller skating and bowling, but I can't tell you about you know, barbering and cosmetology. So, uh, you know, to make it short, you know, she went there, she got all the answers she needed, you know, but um, what he offered her was some space, you know, in one of his other buildings, you know, because, you know, the area is just a little, you know, um, untidy right now. But um, I always, you know, just give people what I've learned, um, you know, what, what I know, um, you know, and, you know, I think together again in unity, you know, there's some um, strength. So, you know, you just have to, you know, be comfortable with yourself, you know, help people and it'll, it'll come back to you, you know, a hundredfold return. Thank you so much. At this time, we will open the floor to questions. If anyone has questions, we'll take three questions. You can just come right up here and ask them into this mic if you would like. Yeah, sure, come on up. How y'all doing? Thank you very much for being here. Um, I wanted to follow up on Dr. Joanne Martin's really eloquent remarks. Um, so I'm thinking about the things that bring business and commerce to Baltimore, like the home buying incentives um, and things like that, like Port Covington, that is supposed to bring so much money to the city. But so many of us, or at least I can speak for myself, like I am very skeptical of. Um, what should we do at this point? Young middle-class black people, young white people that want to be doing the right thing. How can we support the city without gentrifying it, which seemingly necessarily creates the Station Norths and the Remingtons and the Port Covingtons 
and all the other places that are clearly pushing out people that look like, like us out of the city. Um, do you have suggestions? Because it seems like the small business model is a, is a wonderful one, but it's a, it's a really slow one. And it seems to be especially slow in comparison to um, what the city has in mind. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and I, I don't know, I'm, I know you said you were speaking to my comments, but I don't, I mean, you, you're free to answer too. Um, when I look at the, um, at the museum um, and what we've been able to do in terms of, uh, by, by staying in the community, um, and I, uh, I'm not suggesting that all of us have to be, move, uh, uh, be willing to move in our communities, but my husband, Elma, said some of, our, um, um, some of our institutions have to be willing to stay in our communities to make those communities stronger. We can't all run away. So that is what has, uh, has kept us there. But again, we went in with a plan. And for me, it is the idea that maybe we haven't done a good job of communicating with the plan. We're 33 years old now. And so I feel that there are some city leaders who need to understand that they have ignored um, our communities. And we have to um, address that. I think that we have to make some demands and, and put some people's uh, feet to the fire about paying attention to our communities. But again, finding other ways of looking at how we develop cities. That you get the, the developers who come in, they walk away with the ranch, they make all kinds of promises. You, um, you get um, the same developers who get all kinds of perks like tips and pilots and, and all of those things. But why is it that we're the, the last to be considered for anything like that? Why is there not a confidence that we can do uh, it too? I mean, we have survived as a people for 400 years in this country um, through any number of challenges that would have defeated uh, a lesser uh, person. So, the, so Great Blacks and Wax is, uh, is where we are, and we're bringing buses, and I'm saying they don't see those buses, or if they drive by, they say, oh, Great Blacks and Wax is having an unusually good day. <laughs> um, and so if you can think outside of this box that uh, so many of the leaders have put themselves in, and look at um, a promising museum, a promising community where people are coming in. Um, when they come in, the people from New York and Philadelphia and whatever, the first thing they want to know is where the, uh, for black folks, where the all-you-can-eat places. <laughs> <laughs> but they're saying, after Great Blacks and Wax, what is there to do? And Phillips and um, uh, places at the harbor used to love us. They'd feed my staff because that's where, um, where they went. Um, Wendy's and McDonald's love us, but that's all that we have to offer uh, in that community. And so we're saying, look at what we've been able to do, look at those buses and don't see them as buses, but as opportunity, as jobs, um, and think outside of, again, this box that as a leader you put yourself in that uh, means that our communities don't get a chance to thrive. You, um, Mr. Haskins or Mr. Williams, do you guys want to respond to that? I would, I would just echo what Dr. Martin has said. In fact, um, it is important. The, the planning side of it is uh, monumental 
in ensuring that the success is there. Uh, we have seven branches to Harbor Bank, and one of the branches, the first branch is in uh, the Pimlico community. The interesting thing is when you look at that community, almost every major institution exited the community. And I have to say, at one point, my board was pressing to ask, why was I remaining? And part of my comment is that, how can you say to a community that it's valuable if all of the valuable institutions exit? And so we have stayed there because we recognize that there is a financial need there just like there is any place else. When you think about check cashing places that can charge 10 to 15% of the face value of a check, um, someone is given away 14 to 15% of what they don't need to give through give away if they simply open an account at the bank and bring it to the bank. And so we don't exist there just for our benefit, but for their benefit in the sense that it says to them that they're valuable and there's an educational process that goes on. So uh, there is a need to have a commitment and to have support of our own, as well as those who are a part of the, uh, the community. Thank you. If there are no other questions. Stacy, can I make one other last comment before that? Just to put this in perspective, um, at the White House session where the Milken Institute and the Kaufman Fund was present, there was research data that came out that there exists currently in the country about 2,500,000 black-owned uh, companies. What's important for you to note about that is that of that 2.5 million, only 150,000 has more than one employee. 150,000 of 2.5 million. That's one piece of information. The second piece of information is that the gross revenue of those companies, the average gross revenue is $76,000. Now remember your county, that's gross. That's not saying what's at the bottom line, that's gross. So think about it just from a numerical standpoint. I like to deal with numbers so people can walk away and have an appreciation. Think about it this way. If one business added one employee, we'd have another 2.5 million employed. So let's come back to Baltimore. If Baltimore's 40 plus thousand businesses added one employee, you've employed 40,000. My point is, is that if we don't address this, we don't address a critical problem of employment and when you don't give someone an opportunity to support themselves and create a livable lifestyle, you're going to have issues. So we've got to think about how we empower those who are already proven, as the two who are sitting with me, that they know how to operate a business. And if we support them, they'll hire another person. And think about what happens. The moment you start hiring, you hire another. I was told that they couldn't find talented African Americans in banking. 
I made the first black senior vice president female in the state of Maryland 15 years ago. I just made the second one as an executive vice president one year ago, and they're both qualified. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. These are the kinds of insights that we got to collect all season long, which is awesome. We love sitting with people and listening to them. And we try to sit with people for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we get so much that way. It's amazing. Things just like that, things that kind of blow your mind when you're sitting there. And then I get to go process them and write scripts, and it's just been awesome. So thank you so much. Let's thank our panel one more time. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Wincote Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music and all of our live events musical engineering by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos and video from the live show, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. In two weeks, we'll return with the last episode of our first season about the history of one of the country's oldest urban public parks, Druid Hill Park.